Thank you for listening to the Austin Connection podcast. The Austin Connection is also a free newsletter and community on Substack. Check it out at austinconnection.substack.com. See you there. Our ability, I think so many of us like Jane Austen because we we are Lizzie Bennett, right? Like we identify, <laughs> we all want to be, we, we want to be the people. We want to be the lead and that's mm-hmm. enjoyable. We're on the adventure. And, and Jane Austen's awesome because she makes that easy. Um, and her stories make that easy. What does it mean for a new generation of viewers if we insist that you can look different? I think part of my grappling and, and my own journey is feeling frustration and guilt that I enjoy something that insists that I cannot look like the person who is the lead, right? What would it have meant if like that wasn't a thing to grapple with because people telling Jane Austen's stories today already did the work of saying like, no, her stories really transcend that. Professor Danielle Christmas is a scholar in English and Comparative Lit at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She researches serious topics about race, history, from white nationalism to the legacy of slavery and the Holocaust, and how issues like this are depicted in our cultural currency. But when she needs to unplug, Danielle turns to Jane Austen. And she says, even though she doesn't always want to, She can't help bringing her knowledge of race and history into these stories. And as it turns out, race and history are not just marginal shadows in the stories of Jane Austen. They are foundational to the stories and the world of Jane Austen and everything else. This is the Austen Connection. Thanks for being here with me, Plain Jane, as we explore how Austen stories connect us connect us to each other, connect us to our past. Many of us already know Danielle Christmas through her co-hosting of the dynamic discussion series, Race and the Regency from Jane Austen and Company. Danielle led a talk about the historic tragedy of the slave ship, the Zong. And the case was decided by the real Lord Mansfield. You'll hear us talk about this in relation to Austin's novel, Mansfield Park. Danielle took some time recently to chat with me about that and everything from Fanny Price to Bridgerton and beyond. Here's our conversation. Sometimes I really like the idea of, of putting my brain to the use of just having fun, of like playing around in a text that's beautifully written um, and is doing subtle work, right? Like I'm talking mm-hmm. about slavery and the Holocaust and my new work is on white nationalism. That's loud. Like there is nothing quiet about that. And you have to pay attention to the corners and the contours of what's happening in her novels in order to, to really understand the stakes. Um, and it's just a good brain exercise too, right? It's a good, um, it trains me to pay attention to the small things Whereas maybe if I'm spending all of my time just looking at the loud, you know, a loudness, the violence, the, all of that, Mm. um, I miss the corners. Well, tell me, um, Danielle, because you are reading with all of that loudness Mm -hmm. around you and you're very aware of this and you're having to dedicate the time or you're choosing to dedicate your time to exploring all those issues in our culture, everything from sort of our 
lynching histories in our culture and the legacy of slavery and the legacy of racism. What do you bring as a reader with your expertise to Jane Austen? Does that enter into it very much? Do you find comfort in the fact that she was surrounded by these conversations and they are, like you say, subtle, but they might be there, like Edward Said says, you know, maybe look at what's not there as well as what is there. Yes, exactly that. Um, It's always there, even if it's not there, it's there in its absence. And the fact that it's absent is itself indicating something that we should be thinking about. That's doing something, um, whether or not it's present in the room. I think it's fascinating that people, that we talk so much in this special issue that we're doing in persuasions, there is a lot going on, of course, about the triangle trade and how that works. And yet there are what, four lines in Mansfield Park that, that, you know, are the sum total of what Jane Austen clearly said, you know, explicitly said ish, explicitly ish. That is her making a direct reference to slavery. If we, you know, we smart people, we smart advanced people have so much to say based on four lines and its absence, then there really is something fascinating going on. Anytime there is um, a narrative, a television series, a book, anything that has to do, it is deeply embedded in a construction of class culture, right? And manners. There are all sorts of politics that surround that. And she was, right, like, this isn't... um, just that happens to be true she was a brilliant woman and a brilliant writer who wrote knowing that right like it it is it's intentional um i think that sometimes it's fascinating to encounter resistance among people who love jane austen um out of a fear i think that we're pushing politics into a space where it's like a protected space so why are we bringing politics into yet another thing right like why are we um it's there like she was writing (laughs) she was writing about if if we were living in regency times there's no way to read her work without understanding it as like a construction of political narrative not only that or maybe not primarily that but to write a romance novel at the time is itself a political exercise and so acknowledging the truth of that two things can be true at the same time this is what like my major discovery in my scholarship (laughs) in my 30s two things can be true a person can be you know racist and fascinating a person can be she could be writing just enjoyable romantic fiction and also be doing something interesting and political and i think that's what's happening um and it's easy to to get our hackles up on either side of that to insist that it is only politics um and to forget that it's more fascinating i think maybe this is my pop culture brain um but it's more fascinating because it's not just politics right like she's doing something that is supposed to be an exercise in entertainment and pleasure um but she's she's playing this all out in a tableau that's tends to be people of a certain like wealth and class and like that money comes from someplace their comfort comes from someplace the exclusion or not of people you cannot read mansfield park outside of those four lines without understanding fanny and her like 
the absence of wealth, her relationship to the wealthier family and the way that that interaction works at anything except like a, a political inquiry into how relationships with family and money work and power um, and morals and ethics, right? So I so agree. It is all right there. So everything you say, Danielle, so interesting about Mansfield Park. They have to get their money at Mansfield Park from somewhere. You mentioned the four lines about dead silence. There's so much in that novel, if you're closely reading the text, that are choices that Jane Austen is making. And I think she does. she's so good at her job that we forget that there's a puppeteer, <laughs> there's, an or there's a conductor who's making choices about how Mansfield Park get, gets its money, about where Sir Thomas goes when he leaves Mansfield Park, about what Fanny Price is reading, so much more than the dead silence, you know? Absolutely. So tell me more, Danielle, when I read it, it occurred to me that it's not, it doesn't seem to me like too much of a stretch to see Mansfield Park and it's dismantling, I would say. <laughs> it's kind of reduced to rubble by the end of it. It's kind of destroyed. And the only person who's still standing is Fanny Price. Yeah. And I feel like uh, it could be a metaphor for a sort of dismantling of England through colonialism morally not paying attention to your house <laughs> and being out there and not concentrating on what's real and what's uh, actually ethical sure. and the consequences of that. Do you think that's too much of a stretch? And what do you, what else do you think about that's that? That's provocative. I kind of love that. I would have to sit and think about that. Um, I think that that's plausible um, as a sort of larger metaphor. I think that maybe because, you know, we develop like we thinkers in different fields. I'm sure you have your calluses, like your, your kind of preemptive defenses against criticisms you know you'll get. My preemptive defense against those people who tend to in general tell me I'm bringing politics into, politi into politics-free spaces. So it's just romance, right? It's happy. It's just pop culture. Why are you insisting? I think because of that, I tend to be more conservative in the claims that I make than you're being, but I like it. And I actually, <laughs> I haven't been trolled yet. <laughs> it's just a matter of time, but yes, go ahead. Uh, well, no, I think that my, the most conservative and um, uh, the most conservative account that I could easily defend, right. That I think that any person could reasonably defend after you learn a little bit about Jane Austen's family in general, I resist psychoanalytic readings of an author through their work. Don't think it's very helpful, but you can't find out that her father has a trusty relationship with an Antiguan plantation or find out that her brother um, would patrol waters for slave ships and not think about how knowing that and her relationship to them doing that would inform her decision um, to write this novel and what to include and not. Uh, so I think the most conservative thing to say about slavery history, that politics and the novel is that just the insistence that she's publishing this and that she's insisting that people who like her novels 
and enjoy her kind of writing read this that is like that is disruption that is interesting just that Um, yes so I just even stopping there makes me curious um I think sometimes I feel like my job as a teacher, maybe less so in my writing, but as a teacher, is just to make us notice things that we noticed but didn't realize were important to notice. Like to just say if I was teaching a class, like what do you guys think that a woman who was writing what we could we could call like even at the time chiclet, right? Like, <laughs> like, like a woman who's writing, yes, a smart woman who's writing for other literate smart women in as much as any woman is considered especially smart and literate at the time, <laughs> who's interested in reading a, you know, a romantic novel happened to do this, right? Like happened to um, mediate this particular story through the experience of a deep privileged, like, you know, cast aside (laughs) cousin and what you're saying, which is really the kind of collapse of privilege in one family, right? So like, and this is where we're going. Like, just think about that guys. I'm a new historicist. So I want to know what's going on all around the page. I want to know what helped make the story. And I want to know what the story is doing off of the page. And so there is an entire um, ecosystem around what we can tell about this really weird thing she did, right? Like, it's just a weird thing. There's a way to have told that story so that, like, all I needed to do was curl up on my couch and read it and not really have to do any heavy lifting, not grapple with what it means that, like, there are four lines of silence. Um, you know, I, Fanny really is the subject of abuse it's easy to read the novel. And I think because so many of us read the novel, um, so many of us who are doing it outside of the context of the classroom are doing it for pleasure reading. And it's not where is if I'm reading this novel for pleasure, I don't want to sit with Fanny's pain very long. It is unpleasant. It's really cruel the way she's treated. But if we pause and think about that, like that is quite a choice that Jane Austen made to insist that somebody who wants to pick up the genre that they would expect her to be writing, that they have to walk through that um, maltreatment. And it's not just, you know, a a heroine who's mistreated, like she is the subject of abuse compared to how people feel about Lizzie Bennet. I, you know, all of us (laughs) want to have been Lizzie Bennet, right? Like we all want to be her. Fanny is meek. She is not, um, I do not find her to be as, as uh, charming and, you know, she just is coming from a different place. Um, what a heroine she is, right? What a curious heroine she is compared to who we've come to know from Jane Austen's other novels. Um, you know, what, what do we do with that? What do we make of that? Sometimes I think the most fruitful things come from just realizing that there are questions that we haven't been asking. This is the Austin Connection, exploring how the stories of Jane Austen connect us to each other and connect to us today. Danielle Christmas is talking with us about what she calls beautifully, I think, the contours and corners 
around the pages and off the pages of Jane Austen that are still foundational to her stories. Also coming up, do we need to feel guilty for just sometimes wanting to binge Bridgerton? Danielle Christmas will answer this question. Stay with us here. You're in excellent hands with Danielle Christmas, who considers thoughtfully and intellectually the questions the rest of us are maybe too afraid to ask or didn't think of. Now, back to the conversation. Let me get to some of your work, Danielle. Um, You are the co-editor of the most recent issue of Persuasions Online, I believe, right? And um, it's a peer-reviewed publication of JASNA, the Jane Austen Society of North America, and it features essays on Jane Austen and her world. Can you tell me a little bit about the most current issue, um, which is called Beyond the Bit of Ivory, Jane Austen and Diversity? What's going on with that? By the way, I put the call to paper, the call for papers link in our chat. It's so beautiful, the, the first paragraph of that. Um, but first, tell me, tell me what is this issue about? I'm so glad that you think it's beautifully written. Um, you know, it's, it was fascinating. We encountered each other through the Race in the Regency series. That was a fascinating multi-month journey, um, hearing different lectures. Uh, but that wasn't, it's not just, I think what people because so many of us are asking questions about race. We're asking questions we didn't know we should have been asking. We're sort of doing this reckoning in all different corners. Who would have thought we felt as Janeites like we needed to do that reckoning here, which probably- Which is so exciting. Right, and we need to do it even more if we didn't realize that there are questions we should have been asking. So that's good and important work. But then, right, if you sit back and think, okay, we're all kind of engaged in that thinking. Jasna has jumped in. Well, wait, right? Like at Chotten, uh, this past uh, semester, I think in terms of semesters, because I'm an academic, but this yes. past semester, um, I think it was Chotten. It was the Jane Austen Museum mm-hmm. in England where they were doing the Black Lives Matter to Jane Austen yes. exhibit and all of that. I mean, like, whoa, <laughs> what a fascinating that too it activates the same like who's mad who's yelling why what are the stakes to people what's happening like what Mm -hmm. is happening here um it is that so that panic that um what what i believe is alarmism right like what is that Mm -hmm. alarmism about people who have different intellectual stakes in the way that we remember and read jane austen we're all bringing a different set of like thoughts and values and questions um, to this figure as an abstract person, as a writer, mm-hmm. as a creator of stories. We are mapping onto these stories all sorts of powers that they may or may not have. So this special issue um, is an opportunity for us in this moment to do some deep thinking about those questions. You know, there are plenty of folks who have been working on the intersection of these questions and these histories and Jane Austen's work for a long time. So it's not as if, you know, finally scholars are coming to ask questions, but like maybe different scholars than before and some who have been long in this, um, long in this wheelhouse, but different folks who maybe haven't been a part of the conversation yet. And 
all of us, right, whether or not we've been a part of the conversation or we're new to it, are having this conversation right now. And now is a different time to be having this conversation, right? Asking questions about race in the Regency four years ago is interesting and important, but it's different right now. There is something different happening in the way we, in the stakes of the way that we think and argue and, and remember racial history. You all, in your description, the very first sentence in the call for papers refers to the police killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others, and the pandemic that has disproportionately killed along racial lines have shocked the world into a confrontation of inequities resulting from individual behavior, institutional design, and even attachment to limited and comfortable perspectives. Um, that's really powerful language to introduce a call for papers about Jane Austen and the world of Jane Austen. Um, what, what did you mean in that first sentence, limited and comfortable perspectives that we might be attached to? Well, what it makes me think now about is the fact that I think a lot of us, if you read that call for papers and agree like, wow, that's an important conversation to be having, then it's likely that at least a little bit when we read Jane Austen or heaven forbid, we like go binge a Netflix series, right? So something that is especially <laughs> like, you know, who, why should we be wasting hours doing this? This is purely an exercise in like, um, you know, self-pleasure, whatever. Well, let's just say what we're all thinking right now, which is Bridgerton. Yes. <laughs> of course. Of course. So yes, as we're watching Bridgerton, go as ahead. As we're binging, right? As we all sit for one day and watch the entirety of <laughs> all the hour series. Um, we, I don't know. Um, I won't project for lots of others, but I've talked to enough people who um, are the same people who would read that call for papers and think this is urgent and important and then would would realize that there is some degree of guilt that we feel when we are cozied up right now reading Jane Austen. Like, do we, you know, what does it mean that we're exercising our comfortable privilege to sit and relax and read a feel-good book? You know, I feel yes. some guilt about that. Um, I feel guilt as a person, as a just as a scholar who has a certain set of values, but as a black woman who understands all of the history that's in the background of Jane Austen, I sit with some guilt about like what mm -hmm. is and is not there. Um, I think that it's really helpful to um, see that and talk about that and not suggest that like that guilt can't do fruitful things. Um, what I like about spending time with Janeites, because for example, in this persuasions issue, there are some folks who are not quote scholars, right? These aren't people who, these are not the usual suspects that you would find in a typical peer reviewed journal. Lots of people submitted and some of the folks that were publishing are um, non-university folks. And that like we are all bringing a set of affective considerations that typically are dismissed as inappropriate for informing questions and answers that we're insisting that that's okay and it's interesting and it can do interesting stuff some of the essays um unlike a sort of traditional 
peer-reviewed journal are coming more from a place of praxis. Some of them are coming more from a place of like intellectual memoir and what that, and I, that is so valuable, especially when we're thinking about what it means to talk about this figure in this time, considering that the passing description of her is a woman in the 1800s who wrote romance novels, right? Like that's the quick and short version. There's a lot of problems we need to fix right now. And that's really an indulgence. And there is something to be worked out. It feels like an exercise in privilege. Um, and that it's really some of the resistance and alarmism, I think, is that we don't like what it mean, might mean about us if we don't want to think about that. Who wants to think about that, right? Like, who wants to think like, oh yeah, the, the Zong slave <laughs> crisis is happening in the background, right? Maybe Lord Mansfield, the real man, had something to do with the name of Mansfield part. Like, what a terrible, who wants to think about that? Um, so it, it does it make us, I think it's easy if I do a talk for somebody to hear my lecture, to hear the title, read the abstract and not come. I like to think that, I, that you leave my talk with a sense of how I feel about these things. But if you just read it to, to take away that you, sh you should feel guilty. There's something wrong with you if you don't uh, enthusiastically embrace the idea of talking about race, slavery, and Jane Austen, right? Like you are intellectually dishonest, whatever. I think it's more interesting that like none of us really want to do that thinking <laughs> that she made it she made it a little difficult to do that thinking she could have been more explicit but there's yes. no way to read her closely um an adult mind that's really fully formed and inclined to do critical thinking cannot read her novels and not ask questions about power money history race like all of that stuff the silences and the explicit statements, uh, we have to notice it. We do or don't have to choose to ignore it. We're not villains. If like, it's not wrong that on Tuesday, after doing my research on white nationalism, I don't really want to think about that. <laughs> I want to read yeah. Jane Austen and not do that thinking. But I actually think what's more interesting and important, what I would say is more important, because again, I, I'm thinking in terms of my students. I have a lot of students who are in a class who are inclined to think that talking about this stuff means that a professor is telling them they should feel guilty about stuff. That is like, you know, they're conditioned to think that like, I'm saying you should have been thinking about this all along and shame on you. What I would say to them is, I think the most important thing about consuming any culture, so Jane Austen or any media, is to be deliberate and intentional about what you know you're not doing. So like, it's okay if you sit down and decide to binge the Bridgertons or Bridgerton as they call like the, the novels, <laughs> the novels are the Bridgertons, but the yes. series is very much Bridgerton. <laughs> if you decide to binge that and just enjoy it for like, it's fun, right? Or, and to decide, I really want to do anything else. This is a really fun story. I'm going to have fun. It's Netflix. Like it's been a tough day, but do that knowing that like today 
you're not really thinking about, you're choosing not to think about all of the racial politics that Shonda Rhimes introduced by creating this alternate race history in England. The fact that she, if you know the original novels, she completely invented that. That has nothing to do with the actual novels themselves, which is itself interesting, right? It's interesting and creative and fascinating. Um, It's deepening and enhancing those original novels. And it certainly does something for the screen, right? They could have just Mm -hmm. adapted the novels and made a great series. They're great stories. But introducing like the visual politics of having characters, of having a black man and a white woman fall in love in the context, just having interracial romances itself a really political, challenging thing to represent and to think about, especially now that I live in the South, to look at, to argue about, to remember, to all of that. And Shonda Rhimes is like, no, no, no. (laughs) You're going to like, I'm not going to let you enjoy that without noticing what you're not noticing. So I think it's just fine um, to decide, I don't really want to do that right now. I don't want to do that thinking. Um, But tomorrow, like, do that thinking or know that it's thinking that needs to happen Um, And that you aren't appreciating the text for the fullness of what it is, the series for all that it is, that you'll actually, I think, enjoy it more. If you consider like, what a decision she made, right? Like what a fascinating decision she made that we're arguing now again about Queen Charlotte and whether she was black and like our construction of race, like um it's fascinating to hear what people have to say about queen charlotte being black as if race operated in the same way then as it does now all of that and in all of what you just said something sticks out to me that i want to pick up um, a little thread which is jane austen could have been more explicit and i want to be careful that when i'm saying fanny price burned the bitch down (laughs) you know like I'm not superimposing what I would have loved for Jane Austen to be thinking and saying. I do think, though, the more you hear, the more you think, yeah, there's that subtext, maybe even not as subtle as I thought. And you mentioned something in Race and the Regency in your talk on the Zong slave ship, calling Mansfield Park, Mansfield Park is a little bit like writing a novel today and calling it Scalia House. <laughs> like, there's no way that's not saying something. We haven't even talked day. about that. <laughs> that's right so so anyway so I just I I think it's it's not politics it's life (laughs) if you if you think that you need we need to just sit and escape this and your students want to just escape and not look at this it's 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 not politics they're escaping from it's basically life it's just the real world that they are escaping from but yet you need to escape from it so do I and we all do that but yet Yeah, we walk around with it a little bit in our heads. And I feel like Jane Austen knew that. So it's about life and uh, it is painful. That's the other thing you said. Yes, it's painful. You know, wherever you're coming from when you're reading Jane Austen um, and when you're having these conversations about privilege, it's painful. Um, But yet I feel like the art is what helps us work through it. So I guess that's what I pull away. The art, that's what you're doing with your students is you're 
And that's what Jane Austen is doing. Her writing was also an escape for her, according to Claire Tomlin, who was the last person I interviewed, actually, just before you. She really brings out in her incredible biography of Jane Austen, seems a very unconventional, <laughs> myth-busting biography of Jane Austen, but written 25 years ago, I think, that Jane Austen was escaping herself. She also was escaping. She needed that escape and she was escaping, but all of that noise, as you say, that loudness, that, in, that endurance was seeping in. So it's there and it's just going to be unpacked and unraveled for generations to come. Absolutely. You know, and hearing, as I'm listening to us and like listening to you and thinking about what both of us are talking about, I think another discomfort, this is really a sacred cow. So I'm spending time with Jainites and talking about all this interesting stuff and enjoying books with them. I think something that we don't like, we, this group that I've been spending time with, and even here that I wasn't really thinking about a discomfort intention that we have is that Jane Austen probably had some racial attitudes that we really wouldn't like, right? Some really problematic racial attitudes and racial values. And, um, that's hard, right? Like if, if we, if we love her work, if we feel like she was doing important, disruptive, interesting stuff that then challenges us. I think that brings forward all of even more the stuff that's like, what does it mean about me? If I like a person, you know, I don't want to admit that about her because it means something about me and my, um, if it's okay, what are my values? If I enjoy that. And it is itself a kind of like two things can be true, right? Like it can be true that she's doing interesting, disruptive, fascinating stuff. And she, I would put money down on her having racial attitudes that were not too awesome, right? Like, and um, the, I think the helpful thing to remember is like, we don't know, we'll never know. And it's not really that interesting to argue about that. But that actually, mm -hmm. I think, is the core of some of that alarmism, the unstated core of it, which is like, are you trying to indict Jane Austen? Like, no, who can mm -hmm. do that? What are we doing? Like, you know, it's, it's so fascinating because I would say to a person who said that to me, like, I'm not going to indict her. I don't have to. Like, <laughs> it is almost impossible to conceive of a world in which she would formulate her thoughts of, of how the world works and how people work. And that she would think that I, a black woman, am of equal intelligence and right, like, you know, and I was not born into money, right? Like, that she would just assume that I have the same, like, you know, inherent rights as she does. She might, that'd be delightful. There's no way for me to know that. I, you know, yes. I would say that it's probable that she didn't think that like, I have the same, but you know, I actually think it's not that interesting to acknowledge that she was a person. Like she was just a person of her time. And so I want to even, um, among the people who it's fun to have these conversations with disrupt the sacred, you know, like really kill the sacred cow. That's like, we can't, we need, we must admit that this person whose work we love, it's doing something. We are being intellectually dishonest if we refuse that 
And I actually think that's something that's really hard for us to do. There are still people who would read that call for papers, who would share my values or do interesting work, but who will still be unsettled if I say to them that according to today's values and the way that we, um, we construct the idea of racism, Jane Austen was probably racist. That really makes people uncomfortable. Now, you know, I was my intellectual um, upbringing, like, so my, you know, I think about how I was trained as a scholar. I was raised to be a little polemical. Like, so I, in some ways, I just kind of want to see what happens if I throw that through. <laughs> Good for you, Danielle. You know, in I, the spirit what? of Jane Austen herself. All right. And so, you know, what is it? I, I'm fascinated. I I feel like an anthropologist. So if I go in a room and say, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> like, here, here's the way that works. But outside of being kind of mischievous, I actually think that's probably true. Um, and that's okay. Like, I don't think it, it means I shouldn't enjoy her work. I don't think it means anything about anyone who does enjoy her work. I think it means something about all of us. If we are so deeply resistant to a likelihood that like we are, it represents something else. Like I think that requires some interrogation and that's work that even people who read that call for proposals, lots of those people um, who are open to different ways of thinking. So they are not themselves villainous, but like, they're not noticing what they're not noticing, which is maybe their own resistance to the idea that like, according to the way that, that we reasonably assign the label racism, she's probably racist, right? <laughs> like, no, I don't know. What do we do with that? Well, you're challenging me, Danielle, because I did have a question on here. In what ways is reading Jane Austen and Jane Austen, you know, of her time, possibly problematic for us looking at and then I, I but it was painful to even write that question and I asked myself is that is that really necessary <laughs> Janet love it. Ask, and you're telling me it is necessary and let's pull that out sometimes and just it, it's just good again it's another thing that's there or not there to pull out and talk and just make sure like you say if if it's uncomfortable why is it uncomfortable and it's okay by the way, to be uncomfortable, something we all need to know. But Danielle, basically you can solve America. If we can all remember to keep two thoughts in our head, that's your first lesson. And then also just be okay with being uncomfortable. Just if we can all just do those two things, America, yes, we'll be absolutely. on our way. But to insist that you have some thinking to do doesn't make you a villain. It means you have some thinking to do. It means we all have different thinking to do. And then I might not have the same work to do, but I got my own stuff. I mean, with this, it's funny. I remember, I think that this is like, when I say this to my graduate students, this is very much me projecting my judgment of myself in retrospect, I used to call everything problematic. My first job out of college was an <laughs> organizer. I was a union organizer driving around Missouri. So driving around where you are, organizing people, low-income people in downstate Missouri, doing all sorts of, you know, life-changing wow. stuff. I had the mission. My mission was to change the world. 
That's a part of your bio I did not know. Danielle Christmas, ladies and gentlemen, driving around the byways, the blue highways of Missouri. It was. It's an interesting state. <laughs> it is an interesting state to be driving around as a 20-something Black woman who's there to Whoa. organize low-income folks who are, you know, working their hardest. So that was a formative experience. But because of that, quite reasonably, um, I had an eye for like everything that is problematic. And yes, like it's just with that. And I'm not picking on you for using that word. It's a useful word. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm around students well, and, right. and, and daughters, you know, who, who, yes, find everything problematic. Oh, my. And it's so it's just it's so <laughs> lazy. That's the thing ah. I remember about myself and what I mm. notice about my students and the reason that I push them. It's not because they're calling something out that needs to be examined more closely it's that mm. it's lazy to call it problematic and stop right there it's like mm -hmm. it is an empty explanation that explains nothing so you're right it's kind of jargon and you do a great job of cutting through the jargon <laughs> especially for an academic <laughs> i try see that is my that's my dream This is the Austin Connection. We're talking with Professor Danielle Christmas. She co-hosted the Race and the Regency series with the University of North Carolina's Jane Austen and Company. She also is co-editor with Susan Allen Ford of the most recent edition of the Jasna literary journal, Persuasions. This edition is called Beyond the Bit of Ivory, Jane Austen and Diversity. And this next part of our conversation, Danielle talked with me about Bridgerton, about multiracial casting of Regency stories and film adaptations, and how that might change how readers of color encounter these stories, and also how Danielle herself feels that it might have changed her own experience with these stories. Enjoy the last part of this conversation. One thing I have to ask along these lines is that you are spending a lot of time, you say, among Janeites. And you mentioned not everyone would love <laughs> that call for proposals. I mean, what do you think? Because these conversations are going on in a really dynamic, fantastic way with race and the Regency in the Jane Austen world. But there are there are also people that would like to see, and they're coming out on Twitter and saying openly and thoughtfully, I think that they would like to see things going faster. They'd like to see change. They'd like to see a more assertive discussion about diversity and equity. Yeah. Um, uh, but what do you, what is your sense of the Jasna community and its take on equity and diversity and approaching all of these questions in the readings of Jane Austen and her world? You know, that is a terrific question and it's a complicated question. I think that, um, I think that what's good about this special issue is that, that this single, like this one corner of what needs to happen, which is intellectual work, um, that the expressed commitment to prioritizing that thinking so that intellectual work and making that accessible. That is one corner and that's one corner that I'm excited to participate in. Um, the voices that are saying that that is not enough are absolutely right. 
right? It would be dishonest of Jasna or anyone to say, and I don't think they would say, you know, that's it. We're, we're checking it off. <laughs> we're doing this special issue. That is done that. That's right. That's not at all a thing. So I think there is a fundamental misunderstanding um, of, um, of the understood, like a fundamental misunderstanding of Jasmine's ambition around this, right? So ambition to, to do this right. Um, a part of that is the intellectual work and making that accessible as, as a publication, but the other stuff, the like, let's revisit infrastructure. Let's look at like, let's look at our mission statement and let's look at um, participation, the inclusion of other voices and the way that the organization is run. All of that absolutely needs to happen. And that work always takes longer, right? It's always messier. It's always more complicated. Um, and I understand people saying like, you know, TikTok, hurry up. Right? <laughs> um, what I'm excited about is that this moment is giving us an opportunity to prioritize the discussions. I would actually say of myself that I am um, probably unfairly patient. I am predisposed maybe because of like the, the ugliness that I work with and my need to like my particular intellectual project or public facing scholarship is to figure out how to do that, how to make these conversations um, possible, not hostile, really interesting and move at the pace that people can have those conversations, right? So like, do I think we should all burn down the system to stop white nationalism? Sure. Is that going to happen? No. So that means that I've got to talk to a lot of people who really disagree with me in a way that like, whatever. So I have a sense of pace and scale that it's like, well, that's really bad. So like everything sort of feels less bad when that's your measure of bad. So I don't want to use my, um, I would not call myself the best measure of pace of change, right? Um, also, I think because I have the good fortune of doing what I think is like this really important part of the work and that primarily being I'm, I've joined the editorial board of persuasions and I'm really excited about making sure that um, that this isn't a single special issue thing, right? That we like, that this conversation continues and expands, that we're not ghettoizing this work. It's like, you know, we got, we got, yes. we published that all done. Let's move to the next thing. That's important to make yes. sure that the conversation is a conversation and not a one-off. So I know that's a commitment they have. And I know those other conversations are happening and I know there's frustration. Um, there's reason for optimism because we are having a conversation. Yeah. Um, and the most important thing, this does come from my days as a union organizer, is to cultivate um, allies in interest where we can find them. So I know that there are people who are part of Jasmine leadership who are all about making this happen, even if we're kind of different people in different corners um, of any of these intellectual organizations are unclear on precisely how to do that. So make, you know, make the, make noise because no change happens without noise. That's, that's awesome. Do you want to say any more about 
Bridgerton? I mean, I know that you saw it as an escape. Um, does it in any way advance the conversations on all of these conversations on race and the Regency? I actually think it does really important work because there are arguments now about um, casting of Anne Boleyn in an upcoming film production that has her as a black woman and dark skinned black woman playing opposite um, a very classical, like a very white, you know, expected casting for Henry. Um, there are future, there are dozens of future Jane Austen adaptations to come because we love them, right? Like they're going to continue, they'll be made as long as we watch them. Um, when it, I, at what point are those, are we going to insist that we see that in those kinds of adaptations? Um, it, it, I actually think that's really important. It sounds, if someone told me like, you know, this will, this raises the question of like, whether we're going to cast black women as leads in Jane Austen films. I'd be like, that's, I mean, I guess that's interesting, but whatever. I actually think that's really interesting. Our ability, I think so many of us like Jane Austen because we, we are Lizzie Bennet, right? Like we identify, <laughs> we all want to be, we, we want to be the people. We want to be the lead and that's mm -hmm. enjoyable. We're on the adventure. I would say even more so than lots of other um, works. And, and Jane Austen's awesome because she makes that easy. Um, her stories make that easy. What does it mean for a new generation of viewers if we insist that you can look different? I think part of my grappling, what I write about in the introduction and, and my own journey is feeling frustration and guilt that I enjoy something that insists that I cannot look like the person who is the lead, right? What would it have meant if like that wasn't a thing to grapple with because people telling Jane Austen stories today already did the work of saying like, no, her stories really transcend that. It doesn't have to look like, you know, it doesn't have to yes. look like we expect it to look. That would have made a difference. And I actually think that um, Bridgerton is insisting that like the next time there's a production, if they decide to insist on a certain kind of casting, they're being deliberate and intentional about that. And that's provocative right yes. it, it means that if you are making uh the new adaptation of sense and sensibility you don't get to just say even just to yourself maybe nobody else participating with you um is the kind who's going to shake things up and say like who are we going to cast but in your brain as a person who knows that bridgerton was super successful right if you're a person who wants something super successful how much of success of bridgerton could be attributed to like at least our interest at first because of that strange world she um you know Shonda Rhimes wove for us so it would be shrewd for the for future adapters of Jane Austen's work to calculate on whether there is any value in um being equally provocative and and um, making us curious and I actually I do I think that's more important than I would have expected um mm -hmm. And it's always, I think this is the the mischief maker in me. I think it's good to make a person be deliberate in saying, no, they're not going to do something. So like, that's you know, yeah. you're making an adaptation. You should have to tell yourself no, that you're only going to cast the usual suspects. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, it's changed the 
default in a way, maybe forever. And maybe it's been a long time coming. I mean, people, if you look back on so many adaptations, um, I think very soon, if we don't already, we'll be thinking, boy, that is a white world they created. <laughs> and that doesn't even seem realistic. Okay, so very much a random aside. Yeah. And you're, when you're reading Jane Austen's descriptions of her characters now with a kind of a an ear and an eye for colorism and depictions and descriptions, a lot of her le lead characters, I think Eleanor Dashwood, is just described as brown, yes. straightforwardly. Yes, yes. So, does that make it easier for you as a, write, a reader when you were younger? Did you, like Sonia Kamal, who wrote Unmarriageable and who I've talked with, just kind of made it Pakistan? She said, from the very first when I was reading Pride and Prejudice, it was Pakistani. Do you, do you make things what you need them to be in your head? I know I do as a reader as well. I think that's the only way that I can really enjoy Jane Austen, but I like that she makes that possible. Um, lots of her... Um, peer writers and people writing um, all kinds of fiction in the present that I think kind of hits the same spot. Um, make it next to impossible to um, leave that room. Everybody's very like fair and yes, um, pale and blonde and yeah. Right. I don't, I wouldn't go so far as to say that like that is on the list on a top 10 list of what makes her so accessible. But actually right. that matters more than I, I, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I really actually do think it's, it's um, that she is so salient because she makes it so easy for us to be the heroine. I really, I do. I, I you know, as just as a reader, as a, person who reads Jane Austen for pleasure, it is easier to be transported by her work than lots of other things that I read that I would consider mm -hmm. comparable. And uh, we won't give her more credit than would have been deserved. But it I think one thing that's interesting as we talk about the way we unpack these novels and these names and, and just the experience of reading is that it might have been unconscious. There are a lot of things that can be unconsciously happening. She might have been very pissed off about <laughs> Sir Walter and just fed up. Um, and that might not have been conscious. It might have been unconscious. But either way, it's it's interesting. So, yeah. So, anyway, do you have anything else to add that we haven't covered? Thank you so much for this huge amount of time. I'll so, no, I, I don't have anything else to add. But I Well, it's such a pleasure. These were great questions. I hope that... Um... I hope that it is entertaining and fruitful for listeners. That's my, like, that too on my epitaph. She was entertaining and taught us stuff. So. <laughs> you are entertaining and you have taught us stuff, Danielle Christmas. Thank you so much for joining us on The Austin Connection. Thank you, Janet. Um, um, thank you for inviting me. Thanks for joining us for The Austin Connection. The Austin Connection is also a newsletter. You can see links to a lot of the topics and people discussed in these podcasts. And you can sign up for The Austin Connection. It takes about 10 seconds and it's free to sign up and get all of these conversations dropped right into your inbox. It's at austinconnection.substack.com. Thank you for connecting with us over the stories of Jane Austen and so much more. Stay well.